We're in this sermon series throughout uh, the summer, <clears throat> just a summer series from the Bible's shortest books, calling it One Chapter Wonders, looking at these five books out of the uh, New Testament primarily, four of them out of the New Testament and one out of the Old Testament, and uh, we're looking at these One Chapter Wonders. Next slide there, Kaylee. And um, while we're looking here in these, oh, where'd that come from? Uh how did those get in there? I don't know um, how that got in there. I don't, I don't know who put that in there. I, I know people don't like looking at baby pictures that aren't theirs, but uh, sorry, you're a captive audience. <laughs> yeah, we had a great time over the last week. Anne is not home. She did not come home with me for some reason. Uh, she's still down in Georgia for another week and a half. It was really interesting, though. This last week, <clears throat> uh, last Sunday, uh, Abby and Kyle made it home. They didn't feel like going to church, but Ann and I decided that we were going to um, going to church anyway. And so we met up with some dear friends that you may know, uh, Kevin and Jenny Sneed and Will. And we went to church with them. The Sneeds are down in Atlanta, and we went to their church on Sunday. And it was it was it was just the weirdest, absolutely the weirdest thing. The sermon series that their pastor is doing, and I promise you, uh, there is no way, there is no way that this could have been coordinated. He started his series one week before I started this series. The title of his sermon series is Haggai and the One-Hit Wonders. That's it, and he's looking at these five books that we're looking at in a different order, but, you know, he's, he's looking at those, and, you know, so he's teaching from those. Uh, it's I don't know. There's something about this, and it's just a little affirmation there. We're looking at these five short books out of Scripture, and we're trying to find a common, um, not a theme between each of these, but to see the, the point that each of these, these books, though they're small, though they're very short, though, though they don't extend like the book of Romans for you know, 15, 16 chapters, 1 Corinthians 16 chapters, though it's not like, um, you know, one of the Gospels, Gospel of John, 21 chapters. They're only one chapter long, some of them very short in verses, Obadiah a little bit longer, 24, 25 verses, Second uh, John, the shortest one of them, 13 verses, Third John, 14 verses, 15 verses here in this brief book, and, uh, you know, they're just short little books, but these are no accident. There is no accident with Scripture. These are divinely coordinated, divinely inspired. This is the message that the Lord has for us, and so we're looking at each of these, trying to draw the message out of each one of these brief little books. Now, here in Third John, this is the third letter that John has written, and kind of the theme of this book is what love looks like. We want to see from 3 John what the outplay, what the expression of, what the outward extension of love on the inside looks like. And this brief book gives several characteristics of how love is displayed and how love is poured out and what it looks like when love is expressed. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. We can't look at first or Third John and say, as we look at this list, this is all of the things, all of the ways that love expresses itself. But we can look at this list, and actually here in this brief book, there are eight 
eight of these outpourings, eight of these expressions of what love looks like. And uh, we're going to break down each one of those. I know you're thinking eight of those. We only have 30, 35 minutes left here. He won't get through eight. I promise you we'll get through all eight of these. But let's read starting here in 3 John, down at verse 1, and we're going to read the entire book. And it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well, because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, he does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself, and we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. We want to break down this little book, this short book, 14 verses here in 3 John. When we looked at 2 John, we only had 13 verses, short little narrative that John gives. Now, when we look at Scripture, though, we're going to look at a little background of this passage. But one of the things that we always need to keep in mind when we look at Scripture is that all of this is inspired. It is divinely given by the Lord. So though, Paul is, uh, though John is writing to Gaius... John the disciple is the one who is writing this, just as he wrote 2 John. And though he is writing around the same time, A.D. 90 to 95, somewhere in that ballpark, and he's writing to Gaius, he says, the elder to the beloved Gaius. He has this relationship and connection with Gaius, and he's pinning these words. He's giving these words to Gaius. Everybody in the early church understood that this letter wasn't just to Gaius. It was also to the entire church. Because though John is writing to this beloved one in the faith, to Gaius expressing some needs within that local congregation where Gaius ministers and serves, and that John is hoping to arrive, Though he is writing this to him, the understanding is that the Holy Spirit is also speaking, not just to Gaius, but to the entire church, to all of us, and that through this passage, there is a message that we all need to hear. Now, a key verse here in 3 John is this one. It's verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
Now, when we talk about love and how love is expressed, how love is shown, the outward expression of love, here in this brief little book, 3 John, we can come across several examples of how love is shown. Now, it says the elder written to Gaius there in verse 1, and then it kind of gives the focus, the beloved one, I love you and you, Gaius, have shown ways that you love. I've shown ways that I love you, and you've shown ways that you love others. And then we look at some others like Diotrephes, who is not a, a, a shining example of love. So we're going to see how love is expressed through this passage. Now, when we look at this passage, look down at verse 2. And the very first outpouring, the very first expression of genuine love in any kind of relationship, whether it is a relationship between husband and wife, between parent and child, between brother, sister, mother, father, friends, neighbors, one of the very first expressions that ought to be here for all of us is that we ought to be in prayer for each other. Constant prayer, regularly praying for each other. What does love look like? Love prays. Those who love are constantly praying. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, when you read verse 2, you may be tempted to think of the prosperity gospel that is proclaimed in some places today among the American church in particular and is spread to other parts of the world. Now, if you're not familiar with the prosperity gospel is, it is this thought that if I name it, and I claim it that the Lord will bless me with it. That if it's in Scripture and I name and claim what God has given me, that he'll give me health if I just name it. I command this illness to go away and I claim healing in Jesus' name. I command this debt to go away and I claim victory over my debt in Jesus' name. We even hear some some evangelists or TV preachers who teach this so regularly, if you just take your hand and put it on the television right now, I promise you that God will bless you. You just make sure that you send your $40 to me and God will return that to you a hundredfold. Now, we may be tempted to think that that's what John is saying here. I am praying that you would have health and you would have prosperity But keep in mind that the prosperity gospel that is preached today is primarily a me gospel. It is about me, me having prosperity, me having health, me having all those things. But notice here that when John is speaking to Gaius, or Gaius, however you pronounce that, depends on your pronunciation. When he's speaking to Gaius, he says, I pray that you would have prosperity. I pray that you would be in complete health. I pray that the Lord would undergird you and that your life would be wholesome and filled. I'm praying for all of these things for you. Now, how you can tell the difference between the prosperity gospel and praying for prosperity in someone else is this. If it's about me, and I'm praying for my prosperity and praying for my health, and I am claiming it in Jesus' name and expecting God to give that, then I have crossed a line. 
But there is no issue, there is no problem, there is no fault, there is no sin in praying for the prosperity and the health of other people. It's exactly what John does here. And one of the questions that I need to be asking myself, that you need to be asking yourself is, when is the last time that I prayed for the prosperity of someone else? When's the last time that I prayed that God would pour out such a blessing on them, overwhelm them with health and prosperity? You see what love looks like, love prays. Boy, it kind of gives a new meaning and a new understanding to that statement that Jesus said, love your enemies and Pray for those who persecute you. How often do I pray for the prosperity and the health of my enemies? Love, praise. Secondly, look down at verse 3. For I rejoice greatly. When brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth. Those who love walk in truth. Verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Those who love walk in truth. Now, let me ask you a very important question because it goes to the very heart of understanding love. Your understanding of love and how love is expressed and poured out hinges on your answer to this question. So let me ask you this question. Is it really love if I can't tell the other person the truth? Is it really love if I can't tell the other person the truth? Now, I know in our culture there's this whole rewrite of what the truth is, even among Christianity. There's this whole temptation to rewrite what truth is because we often don't like the truth that we find in God's Word. We want to live our lives a certain way, and then when God's Word speaks against the choice to live life that way, we try to rewrite the truth. Well, we need to be very cautious and very careful here when we begin to rewrite what God's Word has to say for a couple of reasons. Well, God gives the warning. Anybody who adds to it takes away from this. May all the curses of this book be added upon their head. But also, there is this, that when I am sharing something that is not from the Word of God, when I am sharing something that is not truth from the Word of God, when I begin to twist the message that God has already given me, I'm not really loving somebody. And the challenge is that in those moments where a loved one, a friend, a neighbor, a family member is caught up in something that is going to hurt them and harm them and destroy them if they continue on this path, if I don't speak truth, I am not loving. 
And so if they're in a relationship that doesn't honor the Lord, whatever that relationship looks like, whether it's heterosexual outside of marriage or homosexual, obviously outside of marriage, or transgender or some other kind of sexual relationship that doesn't honor God, if I'm not speaking truth and I somehow want to twist truth, rewrite truth, and accept something different, then I'm not showing love. That isn't love. That's just cowardice. I am too afraid of damaging this relationship. I am too afraid of what may happen after I speak truth to speak it in love. I'm too afraid of the consequence. My friend, that's not love. Would you really want to go to a doctor who had bad news for you and looked at you and said, hey, everything's great. It's okay, just keep doing what you're doing. Three bags of potato chips and 12 hours on the couch each day. It's all right. If it's good for you, it's good for me. Really? And yet in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what we want to do with other people. We don't want to tell them truth because they don't want to hear truth at times. And yet love speaks truth. Love walks in truth. Look down at verse 5. The third expression, third outpouring of love. Verses 5 through 7. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth with his, went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. What does love look like? Well, those who love, they care for fellow believers. They care for other people. They show genuine care and love for others. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, and they have borne witness of your love before the church. Those who you've cared for, they testify of the love that you've shown. Now, notice here that the care and the attention that is shown by Gaius and by those who are expressing love, the love of Christ, it is not dependent upon how well we know the other person. Caring for people who we know well, that's great, that's wonderful. But Jesus had a statement about that. If you love only those who love you in return... Have you really loved the way that God calls us to love? We need to care for fellow believers. If we're going to show love, the love of Christ, if we're going to have this kind of love, those who love, care for believers, whether they know them well or not. Care for other people, whether they know them well or not. In fact, in verse 5, John commends Gaius for this very thing. You show love to the brethren and to strangers. You show love to those that you know well and those that you don't know well. You show love to those that you already have a bond with and those that you don't have a bond with. You know, I've noticed something over the years, 30-plus years in ministry and serving as a pastor. I've noticed this about churches. Did you know that no church that I have ever come across, no church anywhere, not just the ones that are pastored, but other churches and other places. No church I have ever come across thinks that they are unfriendly. No church does. 
No church thinks that they're unfriendly. I've never had somebody say, hey, come to my church, but let me warn you, the people there aren't very nice. Come to my church, but, you know, i got to tell you, we don't love each other very well. Most people in most churches think their church is friendly, think their church is very loving. But now let me ask you, have you been around some churches and known some churches, some places that aren't very loving? Yeah, you probably encountered a few. We've seen some. We know some. We know that not every church is loving, but when you ask, people think, well, I belong to a loving church. You know why that is? Because in every church, there are people who do love some people. In every church, everywhere, there are people who do love some. And often they love people that they already have a connection with, those that they know. And some stranger walks in from the outside, and they may not get a handshake. They may not get a friendly smile. They may actually get a raised eyebrow and wonder who you are, why you dress like that, why you're sitting in my seat. You need to move, son. And that's the expression of love that exists. But John says to Gaius, he says, You care well for those who are part of the fellowship, believers, and for those who are strangers. You know, one of the expressions of love is that we care not just for those that we know well, but those that we don't know well. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth, that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Those who love, pray. Those who love, walk in truth. Those who love, they care for fellow believers and strangers. And those who love, serve where they can. Those who love, serve where they can that we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. You know, it may be that not everybody has the opportunity to go serve on the mission field in Ethiopia, Peru, Lithuania. may not have the opportunity to go do that. It may be that not everybody has the opportunity. We know that not everybody has the opportunity to go to Pittsburgh or go to North Carolina on a trip and serve and minister on some mission project where there is a great need. Not everybody can. Not everybody is called to go, but everybody is called to serve. And serving where we are is just as important as serving away from where we are. There are those who are called to serve away, and there are those who are called to serve here. We've got to understand that regardless of whether we're called to serve here or there, wherever we serve, every step along the way. Back when I was in seminary, uh, I was in seminary in Kentucky in my master's program. You know, I had uh, several pastors that kind of connected with, you know, they were fellow pastors, very young like I was, and they were pastoring their small congregations. I was pastoring my small congregation there in Kentucky, and 
Um, you know, we'd kind of network a little bit, talk some, because we still had classes, and so we had that, that friendship, that relationship that we had built. And one of my friends, he had uh, he started to do a Bible study series at his church. And uh, the very first night, he did this Bible study series, and he had announced it and said, we're beginning this, and he called it Basic Theology. Now, there's a reason why often you find that from seminary students when they're teaching in a church because basic theology is one of those things that seminary students study. And so he kind of took this and he started doing a Bible study in his church, basic theology. And he started in the very first teaching session that he had with basic theology. Um, you know, he had this small congregation, about 25 or 30 people who were there for this Bible study time, 50 people in worship on Sunday. And he did the very first lesson on basic theology, got through the lesson, felt like he had just knocked it out of the park, done really good. And he was telling us, you know, about this, and he said, after the Bible study, there was this older fellow who came forward, and he's just kind of waiting in line to talk with me afterwards, and he walked up, and he said, Pastor, you know, I think that uh, we might need a little more of that basin theology. And he looked at him, and he said, no, no, no. Basic theology, that's, that's what we're studying. And the old fellow said, no, no, no. We need a little more basin theology. You know how Jesus took that basin and he picked it up and wrapped the towel around and he went around and washed the disciples' feet. We need a little more basin theology here. Man, what a profound statement. In a lot of ways... We need a little more basin theology. Because those who love serve. They serve where they can. Not everybody will be a pastor. Not everybody will be a missionary. Not everybody will be a Sunday school teacher. But every person is gifted to serve somehow, somewhere within the body of Christ. Those who love serve where they can. Now, this letter takes a little change here because John is speaking to Gaius through this first section, and he tells about how I've been praying for you, Gaius, beloved. I pray that you may prosper in all things, be in health, just as your soul prospers. I rejoice greatly, speaking about himself there. Verse 5, he starts talking to Gaius, speaking about Gaius, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you have done well. You do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, all of us together, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. But this letter takes a little turn here in verse 9 where John points out this one, Diotrephes, who is standing in the way. And in fact, this is a negative expression of love. He said, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Those who love pray and walk in truth and care for fellow believers and serve where they can. But one of the things that we also need to keep in mind is that those who love do not put themselves First, those who love do not put themselves first. Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them. 
He does not receive us. Those who love do not put themselves first. One of my favorite little devotional books is one that's written by Max Licato. You probably heard me reference this sometime in the past. I don't think I've referenced it any time recently. But whenever I get a little um, too self-focused, I have this book and I keep it in my office and it's right nearby where I can see the title on regular occasions. And the title itself just speaks volumes, but pulling it out and reading through just reminds me and keeps me focused. And the title of the book is, It's Not About me. Great little devotional book by Max Licato. Good little reminder for me regularly. It's not about me. Never has been about me. It's not about you. Never has been about you. It's about him. And it will always be about him. Now, in that early church, what had begun to happen was that Diotrephes was a leader in the church. And Diotrephes, when John would send people to serve there, he would say, no, don't listen to them. When Gaius would arrive, he would tell him, no, you can't be a part of this fellowship. He wanted to be in the place of preeminence. He wanted to be the one who had all kinds of power, all kinds of leadership, the one making all the decisions. And he had fallen into the trap of thinking that he had to be first. But those who love don't put themselves first. Whether it's in a marriage relationship, as expressed in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit is also speaking to us, and he says in verse 21 that we must mutually submit to each other, and that in this marriage relationship, wives must submit to husbands, but husbands must also submit to wives. Wives, submit yourself unto the leadership of your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, give yourselves completely away as Christ gave himself from the church, for the church and died for her. Because you see, love doesn't put self first. In the role of a parent with a child, we know that there are so many sacrifices that a parent has to make. In order for that child to be raised in the right way, understanding the truth of God's word and walking in faith with the Lord, those who love, those who genuinely express love, don't put themselves first. It's really not love if I'm putting me ahead of anybody else that I say that I love. Those who love not only don't put themselves first, verse 10 Those who love don't destroy others' reputations. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does. This is Diotrephes. If I'm able to come, of course, John wasn't able to come. He was still in prison on the Isle of Patmos. He never did go. But he said, if I come, I will call to mind. I will bring forward. I will remind the church. I will mind, call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. Oh, what a wonderful phrase. What a wonderful turn of the English language, prating against us with malicious words. In other words, Diotrephes is trying to destroy the reputation of John, of Gaius, of all those leaders in the early church who were teaching the word of God faithfully and fully. And he would speak things that 
weren't true. He may speak things that were true, but twist them in such a way that it would tear down the reputation of those who were following the Lord. But those who love don't destroy others' reputations. And those who love don't hinder others from their service to the Lord. Still in verse 10, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not only that, he's not content with just destroying our reputation. He himself does not receive those who would seek to serve the way that we've called them to serve, putting them out of the church. Not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to receive them, putting them out of the church. Those who love don't destroy others' reputations and they don't hinder others from their service to the Lord. Now, if we think about that, well, I mean, nobody does that, right? Nobody hinders somebody from serving the Lord. This Diotrephes guy, he was just a, he was a, he was an exception to the rule. I mean, we don't do that today, right? We, we don't get in the way of other people's service to the Lord, right? I mean, after all, we're, we're open to anybody using their time and talents, aren't we? I mean, we're open to new ideas and new ministry that may not look like the old ministry that we've done for the previous 30 years. I mean, we're always open to new ideas like that, right? We're always open to new leadership stepping in and, and people serving in, in positions who may not have served there before, right? I mean, we're, with our family, we don't ever get jealous about the time that they give in service. We don't ever get upset that there's another deacons meeting or another stewardship committee meeting or they're with the teenagers again. That doesn't happen, right? See those who love? They don't hinder somebody else from what that person feels called of God to do in service to the Lord. Because love doesn't put me first. Love puts others first, puts him first. Those who love don't hinder others from their service to the Lord. And one last thing, verse 11. Those who love do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, it sounds so simple. Which of us would imitate evil? Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Well, what does it mean to imitate evil? Does it mean that I perpetuate evil? Well, I don't even think it means that. Does it mean that I'm out there sinning? Well, I don't know that it even means that. Do not imitate evil. It means that those things that we see in our world today, which are so powerful, a draw 
that pull people away from the truth, pull people away from the church. We don't need to imitate these things. We don't need to try to blend in. We don't need to try to fit in. You are supposed to be peculiar. Congratulations, many of you fit that bill well. I am supposed to be odd. I am supposed to be a weirdo. I am supposed to be different, and you are too. We are not to imitate evil. We don't need to imitate those who don't know the Lord. We need to imitate those who do. Because love understands that there's this distinction, there's this line in the sand. I'm on this team, and I want to stay on this team. I want to be identified with this team, his team, the Lord. And if it means that I wear goat skin and eat locusts in order to be on that team, maybe I need to be willing to sacrifice a little of my pride and be a little weird and a little odd knowing that I'm on the right side rather than trying so hard to imitate those who I know are on the wrong side. There are all kinds of expressions of love. But we need to make sure as believers, as followers of Christ, that our ideas, our expressions of love, the outpouring of love comes from the word of God. That's really at the core of this short book. That's exactly what John tells Gaius. I rejoice that you are loving the way that the Bible says, that you are walking in truth. I rejoice every time one of those that I have a relationship with I rejoice whenever one of my children, John's much older at this point in time, in prison on the Isle of Patmos. I rejoice every time one of my children are walking in truth. See, if we're going to express love, let's express it in a biblical way, just as John outlines here. Let's not imitate evil. Let's imitate good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. This brief book, which contains such a powerful message, such an outpouring and expression of love. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, convince us and convict us both of our need to follow your word and understanding what genuine love looks like and how it's expressed. Father, today, pray that you would work in my heart. Remind me that it's not about me. Lord, it's about you and what you desire to do and how I fit in that. So, God, this day, we give you this moment, and we ask your spirit to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.